Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Welcome to issue nine of The Bugle, Times Online's unique audio newspaper for the week beginning the 10th of December. With me, Andy Zaltzman in London, and in New York, Mr John Oliver. Hello, John. Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. Uh, how is the writer's strike going stateside, John? It's cold, Andy. It's, it's very cold. Is that affecting the picket line? Well, it's certainly... Well, basically what I'm doing at the moment is marching around in a circle next to a giant inflatable rat as someone screams at me through a megaphone about how high my morale is. <laughs> that, that's my life. There are two different strikes going on. There's one in L.A. where Brad Pitt turns up and hands out cakes. And then there's the one in New York where people come over to throw up in a bin next to you. <laughs> let, let me say, Andy, happy Hanukkah. Thanks, John. Thanks for that piece of well-wishing and reminding. <laughs> what a bad Jew! You're not as bad a Jew, Andy, as a delicatessen down the road from me, which, uh, for one day and one day only, had in its window a Hanukkah ham. <laughs> it was a ham that said, Happy Hanukkah. Why not enjoy this ham? Well, I'll tell you why not. John, is it not time that we started to try to build bridges between the, the rival communities? and diets of the world. Maybe. Well, in which case, they are trendsetters, this deli. Uh, as always, some sections of the Bugle are going straight in the bin. Uh, this week, uh, a feature on the Turner Prize for Art, uh, which is just a recording of a woman saying painting, sculpture, painting, sculpture, over and over again. And also in the bin is uh, a free audiobook this week, the Manual of Accounting, Management Reports and Governance 2008, published by PricewaterhouseCoopers, narrated by Zoe Wanamaker, with statistical appendices by Ashton Kutcher, and backing music by Robert Plant and the Spreadsheets. Ashton Kutcher's involved in that. Well, that, that should be worth a well, listen. Well, it's, I believe, his first audio book in really? the accountancy sector. Oh, good for him. Good for him. Let's hope it's not his last. Top story this week, Iran's nuclear weapons, all that weren't, that just weren't at the last minute. A US report this week revealed that Iran had in fact halted its nuclear weapons program as far back as 2003, and the US government have claimed that this is a vindication of their current strategy, which is like hitting a golf ball into a lake and screaming hole in one. <laughs> they said it would be easy to misread this report, and... You have to read it in a certain way, Andy. Ideally, in a dimly lit room, from an angle, upside down, and with your eyes closed. <laughs> and it's best to be thinking about Iran and how they've got nuclear weapons while you're reading it as well. Is it like a magic eye report, where it looks exactly. like it's saying that they don't have weapons, but then you look really close and it's just the outline of a massive mushroom cloud? It's just about relaxing your eyes and refocusing it, and then all of a sudden you see warheads everywhere. So the nuclear threat Iran poses has been officially downgraded from kaboom to... <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Iran is, quote, less determined to develop nukes, let's give them their proper title, according to uh, US intelligence. It appears to be something of a question of motivation, John. They've just lost that edge in terms of their nuclear programme. And maybe there are rumours that Ahmadinejad has lost the dressing room when it comes yeah. to uh, the nuclear programme. 
this by no means, Andy, was the news that the US and its president was looking for. And there must have been moments when the Bush administration looked like a child on their birthday who had just unwrapped something that they hate. Oh, that's great. I love this report. How did you know? This is just what I wanted. I'll, I'll just put it down over here by the shredder that I got given and which I also love. The Bush view seems to be that because the intelligence on the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction was wrong, why should this new intelligence on Iran's nuclear programme be any different? So we shouldn't really trust it. In fact, if you've learnt one thing from Iraq, and I hope that is the absolute minimum number of things that we have learnt <laughs> from Iraq, it is that we should assume that the intelligence is wrong. So if the intel says Iran is clean, it's safe to assume that Ahmadinejad is currently standing next to his big red button with a map of Israel and a map of the USA saying, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." it's so difficult to choose. <laughs> Bush said that Iran had the programme, they halted the programme, and the reason why this is a warning signal is that they could restart it again. And that is doing to logic what they're doing to detainees at Guantanamo at the moment. <laughs> Amnesty International are putting the concept of logic on its abuse list. Light a candle for logic, Andy. <laughs> Light a candle for logic. Bush ha has previously warned that stopping Iran from developing nuclear technology was vital to preventing World War Three, mm -hmm. which might be slightly histrionic. You know, with just over a year to go of his presidency, he's getting a little bit demob-happy already. And I think we all accept that World War Three is inevitable, it's just really a matter of time. And maybe we just got to accept that, you know, after two world wars in 30 years, we haven't had a single one for 60 years now, so maybe fair's fair, we can't really complain if there is now a devastating global conflict. Bring it on, that's what I would say. But I think you're right, Andy, because it seems like the Bush administration are wanting to sign off in style somehow... Now, they want a big season finale to their second and final term, and now they're being told that they can't airstrike Iran, they're going to have to come up with something else. They need a big finish somehow. Yeah, and the, the, to the clock is ticking. If he wants to set the wheels of Armageddon in motion, he's going to have to pull out something incredibly special. So if, if any of the Bugle listeners have any ideas about what the Bush administration's big season finale could be, please email in your suggestions and we'll pass them on to the Pentagon. Maybe a nuclear strike on Bolivia. It's a mid-season way to boost ratings, that, Andy. You're not going to go out on that. That's not a cliffhanger. All I know is that they are building many more submarines than a completely landlocked country needs. I appreciate your concern there, Andy, but I just question what they're going to do with those submarines. Are they going <laughs> to fire them through the air? <laughs> what, what do you think Bolivians are doing with these submarines? Or maybe they weren't submarines. See, it's that easy. <laughs> But it's that easy to get faulty information. But at least this, this new, this latest report on Iran's nuclear program has diffused the growing tension over a possible uh, US military attack. Uh, possible, although it would be silly, uh, at that kind of military attack. You would have thought America should finish its previous two attacks first. And really, it appears that America lacks some hard-edged parenting here. And, you know, it's like a naughty child that never cleans its room. You know, it just, you know, starts a war and then gets bored, doesn't really finish it, and then wants to start another one. And um, I think we in Britain, as the parents, albeit estranged slightly, of America, uh, we've got to hold our hands up and say sorry to the world. This, this has been an abrupt change of position for the Bush administration. Their previous position was that of a rabid dog tethered to a post, snarling and trying to chew through its leash. And now the position is the same. The same dog, equally rabid, but now it's sulking in the corner. <laughs> but Bush has said, uh, uh, in response to this report, that Iran should reveal the full extent of its nuclear programme. 
um, which the report has done, but he thinks Iran should do it itself, or else he will hold a press conference. So be warned, Iran. Be yeah. warned, that press conference could easily happen. He said the report did say Iran pretty much knocked its uh, nuclear weapons program on the head in 2003, but Bush says Iran has more to explain about its past actions. He also said that on their past actions, Mongolia can't be trusted. Uh, he used these exact words, the Mongol hordes have attacked us in the West before, we must make sure they never have the capacity to do so again. He also demanded that all Scandinavian countries agree not to make helmets with horns on. It's good that he's standing up to historical violence. He's urging us to focus on the positives, maybe amongst them being the fact that the words Iran and nuclear weapon were in the report. Not necessarily next to each other, but they were there together. And that, that's not nothing, that's something. He also said that Iran was dangerous, Iran is dangerous, and Iran will be dangerous. Which sounds like he was trying to conjugate the adjective dangerous. Well, it's good that he is making a belated attempt to master the English language. Yeah, that's right, but better late than never. Uh, in an interesting adjunct to this story, the Canadian ambassador has been expelled from Iran for being naughty or something, according to the Iranians. It appears that an Iran-Canada war is now more on the cards than an Iran-America war. Well, that could be an interesting war. That's a good matchup, uh, a very good matchup, particularly if it is fought over two legs. Relations are said to be strained between the two countries, but to be fair, that is by Canadian standards, and they pride themselves on friendliness. What this probably means is that they just don't gift wrap the maple syrup they're sending over as presents. That's a big snub for a Canadian. Uh, this is all because a Canadian-Iranian journalist died in custody, and the officials were acquitted of semi-intentional murder, which is an odd charge. They meant to murder her, yes, just not in that way. <laughs> or maybe they meant to murder someone else, but got the wrong person. It was nearly intentional. So what countries do actually have the nuclear bomb uh, these days? If you are in one of the following countries, listeners, you have the confirmed capacity to unleash Armageddon on the world. Come on, Britain. America. Oh. Russia. Oh, come on. France. Ah. China. Of course. India. Uh, Pakistan. Yes. North Korea. Of course. And... The United Kingdom. Yes, we got one! Yes! Oh, that's good to know. Happy Christmas, everyone. I feel so much safer. And if you are in one of the following nations, you may or may not definitely have nuclear weapons. Israel and Liechtenstein. Apparently they do have a nuclear weapon, but they don't know about it yet. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev left one behind on a skiing holiday in the early 60s. The most interesting country regarding nuclear weapons is South Africa, which had a nuclear weapon, but then disassembled it. Just disassembled its entire arsenal. So it was a member of the club and then decided, well, I don't like this club. I think I'd just rather go into an economic spiral. South Africa's done quite well at jettisoning things that you really would prefer not to have. Um, <laughs> I just don't know what you're referring to. You have to be more clear, that's too oblique. And well, well, it does raise the question, though, who were they planning to use a nuclear weapon on other than the disenfranchised majority within their own country? <laughs> Which might have backfired when they suddenly found themselves with no-one to do their washing up. So, genetically, Andy, you have a, a shady history with nuclear weapons because, you know, you're, you're British, yep. so you have a nuclear weapon. Yep. You're Jewish, so you probably have one but won't admit it. Yep. But you're also South African. That's right. My father uh, was from South Africa. So... That means I am the most nuclear-armed person in this room. Albeit that I am in a recording studio and there's only me in this room. But e even if it was a much bigger room with many more people in, I would still be 
a nuclear threat to everyone. So back off, America. The question, Bugle listeners, is should Andy Zaltzman be under the auspices of a non-proliferation treaty? Let's have your views, thebugle at timesonline.co.uk. I'm lobbying for sanctions against you, Andy, immediately. Incidentally, the Israeli nuclear whistleblower Mordecai Venunu, not only back in jail, but a musical based on his childhood, has been cancelled. Uh, which is a great shame. Had a brilliant song, uh, the lyrics of which began, Mordecai, what a guy, put state secrets in the public eye. <laughs> so, Mordecai Venunu <laughs> is an absolutely incredible name. My name is Mordecai Venunu, and I am an accountant. It wouldn't work. He, he could have been a magician. I think it's a good name for a magician. Yeah, but nuclear whistleblower, next best thing. Because I would say, uh, is a nuclear weapon actually the ultimate deterrent? Because they're not always useful. Uh, for example, in my recent disputes that was obliquely referred to in an earlier edition of The Bugle with people just down the road who stole our bin... As we know, as we just found out, I'm a nuclear power. But they didn't seem to find this much of a threat in terms of returning my bin. And I'd parade up and down the road with a nuclear weapon outside their house. But, <laughs> you know, in a dispute like that, I think they just assumed I wasn't going to use it. And if anything, I right. alienated the rest of the street. So let that be a lesson to you, world. Now, George W. Bush has been a busy man, not just claiming that Iran is a nuclear power, but he's been writing to North Korea on the subject of nuclear weapons as well, writing a letter. It's nice to keep in touch, so much more personal than the traditional email or televised trash-talking that Bush has generally favoured throughout his reign. <laughs> Handwriting experts have suggested from the letter that Mr Bush is confused and angry. Now, the press have made a big deal of this, Andy, but... In fact, Kim Jong-il and Bush are pen pals from a long time ago. They met at a summer camp when they were both children and kept in touch by regular letters. Uh, they never write about work, so neither one knows what the other one is up to at the moment. <laughs> they just exchange recipes and say how they're feeling. There's a great history of letters between ma major figures uh, throughout history, dating back to the Battle of Hastings, when William the Conqueror sent uh, King Harold a letter, but made the mistake of sending it attached to an arrow. It just had a circular joke on it. And uh, it's believed that Harold's last words were, since when was my eye an intray? There's other letters been dug up recently. This one from Hitler to Neville Chamberlain. Dear Neville, still can't believe you fell for that. I'm feeling a little bit guilty, but only a little bit. Love, Adolf. P.S. Best wishes to Anne and the kids. This one is from uh, the Duke of Wellington. And it reads, Dear Napoleon, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to make you feel like a clown. Your <laughs> cavalry got horses. They're going to need hearses. Your infantry couldn't march between February and April. Know what I mean? You rushed into Russia, now have a brush with Prussia. Sincerely, <laughs> Wellington. It's been a long time <laughs> since there's been a Duke of Wellington joke, Andy. And I'll tell you why, because people say it isn't relevant anymore, <laughs> and those people are crazy. Well, you know, in, in many ways, Muhammad Ali modelled his pioneering trash-talking on the Duke of Wellington. Uh, and this uh, letter from Florence Nightingale to uh, William Gladstone. Dear William, do I make you feel horny? Andy, <laughs> stop it. Stop it. This is becoming a running joke I want no part of. <laughs> that woman did a lot of good. You know, she did a lot of good, but, you know, she had a private side, and I'm not charging her for that. Sleep well, Saltzman. Sleep well. Another major election took place this week. We had Australia recently, and it was Russia's turn. And it really begs the question now, what is so good about Vladi Putin? 
because he's got that X factor, Andy. And that is a new question where X equals complete control of the national media. <laughs> if you control the media uh, like that, you could be leader of a country too, Andy. Maybe this podcast is just your first tentative steps towards that goal. Um, Julius Caesar began his career podcasting. Why not Andy Zaltzman as well? So what is his secret? I mean, he's obsessed with oil. Uh, he's keen on curtailing freedoms and he has a militaristic attitude. So what sets him apart from our own leaders who have the same qualities but very much lower popularity ratings. A key thing in Putin's favour is that protesting in Russia is even colder than your protest in New York, John. That's true. I doubt much colder, though. So I imagine if you're a Russian waking up one morning thinking, well, should I go out and protest against the president, probably leading to my own incarceration, or should I just sit inside and drink three bottles of vodka (laughs) whilst communing with my national spirit? You're probably going to choose option B. Uh, there was one great shock result from the uh, Russian election, and that was in Chechnya. Putin got 99% of the vote from a 99% turnout, which makes perfect sense. It's like I've always suspected, Chechnya has always liked Putin. <laughs> They've shown that, Andy. All this separatist movement is clearly just Chechnya playing hard to get. They just want his attention. <laughs> but if those figures were able to include uh, the dead people in Chechnya... <laughs> That 99% would probably be much lower. Maybe 49%. An interesting story to be thrown up by the Russian election is that Andrei Lugovoy, the main suspect in the Litvinenko poisoning murder, has been elected as an MP in Russia, is therefore immune from prosecution, which is quite a good way of getting out of being prosecuted for poisoning someone. I just wonder if you look at the MP sitting in our own House of Parliament in Britain... How many of them have committed poisonings? And I would imagine it's well over half. But is that the case, that if you're a Russian MP, you can't be tried for murder? It sounds like the kind of thing Stalin might have just sneaked through. It's it's an attractive package, though, isn't it? You pension, healthcare, and you could poison anyone you like. (laughs) That's a good good job. But you do have to declare all those poisonings. Got to be all public domain. Those voting for United Russia, the party of Vladimir Putin, were entered into a prize lottery in St. Petersburg. So not only can you participate in democracy, you might also win a fridge. <laughs> Why don't we have that? That seems like a lovely thing to do. What, bribing the electorate? No, it's not <laughs> bribing, Andy. It's rewarding. It's making oh. the whole process more exciting. That's how you get 99% turnouts. I do think we do have a bit of an issue in Britain that voting is quite dull. And maybe to make it more exciting at the next general election, there should be five golden ballot papers entitling each lucky winner to a magical journey around the Department of Trade and Industry. Uh, Gary Kasparov referred to this as the most unfair and dirtiest election in Russian history. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Steady on, Gary. (laughs) This is Russia you're talking about. (laughs) You're doing a great disservice to the many... Wonderfully unfair and dirty elections in Russia's history. <laughs> you know, let's give Gary the benefit of the doubt. He's upset, Andy. He doesn't know what he's saying. Ever since that computer I'm... beat him, he's just just <laughs> not been the same. Now a special bugle law section. One of the biggest upcoming pieces of law news is that the US Supreme Court will hear a case on Wednesday which will be a legal showdown over Guantanamo Bay uh, regarding whether or not Hebus Corpus applies to people there. And if the court rules in favour of the detainees, indefinite detention could be ruled unlawful and that could be the end of the Guantanamo that we know and love. 
that would be a shame. Uh, the US government lawyers uh, apparently claiming that because America does not own Guantanamo, therefore uh, habeas corpus does not apply there. So effectively America is not actually holding these prisoners. So I don't know why yep. they're getting all the blame. And they're living there rent free, Andy. Yeah, in fact, the inmates, or as I like to call them, residents at Guantanamo, ought to be paying their American hosts for looking after them in a venue that they don't even own. That shows the generosity of America as a country. And as is so often the case, Andy, this was all Britain's idea. Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, uh, he set up very much the first Guantanamo Bay in Jersey when he could keep his prisoners offshore. Uh, he was eventually impeached and fled abroad. But if he'd been smart, he'd have patented the idea and the Hyde family could still have been making residuals from Guantanamo <laughs> now. And in many ways, that's what this writer's strike is all about, Andy. The Earl of Clarendon did the work and he's just not receiving the residuals that he deserves. Uh, one of the prisoners uh, was a charity worker and another was a school teacher. Now, that might sound benign, but those were the two professions that a young Osama bin Laden told a career advisor he wanted to be if his top dream of being a terrorist never came true. <laughs> Better safe and slightly sorry, Andy. On the subject of uh, civil liberties, the CIA has apparently destroyed some tapes of interrogations it has carried out uh, in order to protect the identity of its agents and because these tapes no longer had intelligence value, and also because, what, those old tapes? Oh, no, we didn't keep them. Who'd want to watch a video of us beating 16 different kinds of muesli out of terror suspects? Very boring, <laughs> I can tell you. And the lighting was no good. We recorded America's longest pets over it. You can have that. It's got a 12-foot-long Labrador in it. Well, what other long pets were, were in that programme, Andy? Most, mostly snakes, John, to be honest. <laughs> and a couple of alligators. In British law... The government has announced plans for uh, some new super prisons that will take up to 2,500 naughty people at once. Uh, Britain's prisons are at bursting point. In fact, just the other day, HMP Ashwell in Hertfordshire actually burst. Uh, bits of it raining down all over the surrounding countryside, and the sex offenders wing landed on the A421 just outside Biggleswade. So do drive carefully and with your headlights on. This is a good litmus test for society in Britain, Andy. The need for three new super prisons. Nothing says the system is working better than three new super prisons. <laughs> well, I'm just worried that building new super prisons is just encouraging people to commit crime. Yeah. Because they see these facilities and thought, well, you know, we're British. We like to think we're getting value for our tax money. And if we see a spanking new temple to human desolation going unfilled, then we're <laughs> going to get out there and do a bit of crime to make sure we as a nation get our money's worth. It, even with these super prisons, due to overcrowding, getting a place in prison is hard at the moment. It's, it's like getting into university. <laughs> You've got to have the right qualifications, and it can really help if one of your family's been there before you. <laughs> Britain is an island, Andy. Wouldn't it be cheaper just to call the whole of the UK an open prison and say that we're all in jail? We all probably deserve it. <laughs> any of our British Bugle listeners, can any of you honestly claim that you don't deserve to be in jail? Please email in and explain why the bugle at timesonline.co.uk. And now, your emails. I was very excited to receive this email from a Nicholas Blackmore in Melbourne, Australia. The subject, Australians touching up the Queen. And he writes, Gentlemen, <laughs> as one of your loyal Australian podcast listeners, I feel duty-bound to point out that it was indeed Paul Keating who was famed for touching up the Queen. <clears throat> John, what do you got to say for that? 
Yeah, I, I, I concede the points. It was Keating who touched her on the arse. Right. But I maintain that Howard did put his arm around her. Yeah, but he didn't actually touch her, John. He says, Howard was a staunch monarchist who was the main reason behind the failure of Australia's Republic referendum in the late 90s. If not for Howard, future Australian PMs would have to resort to touching up the president. Just another example of Australia becoming more and more like America. So that is, in uh, fact, the leveller for Andy in the trivia off. It's one all, John! One okay. all! Okay. Read okay, it in well, we'll see. Re- we'll I'm, see. I'm running around the studio pointing to my own name on my back. It's one all. <laughs> I particularly like the email from Sherry's K, who wrote, Dear the Bugle, whenever I get depressed about our little hamster-eyed presidents, I think back on the greatest presidents we ever had in a movie. Like, after that huge asteroid slammed into the Atlantic in 1988 and Mr Friedman told us, Cities fall, but they are rebuilt. Heroes die, but they are remembered. Or during the alien invasion of 1996 when Bill Pullman rallied our troops with the best rally the troops speech since Henry V. That quote from uh, Mr Friedman, uh, Mm -hmm. Cities fall, but they are rebuilt. Heroes die, but they are remembered. That reminds me very much of a quote on uh, a publicity leaflet produced by my local kebab shop, when they opened, (laughs) who wrote, in one of the greatest things I've ever seen, a two-page essay about the kebab (laughs) and how magnificent it is. And it it included this sentence, civilizations rose and civilizations fell, gods were born and gods died, but the kebab remained. (laughs) (laughs) And this one comes from Ben Falk, and it's addressed to you, John, under the subject, Naughty Nurse. Oh, no. Dear John. I don't like the way this is heading. I take great offence at you laughing at Andy for fancying Florence Nightingale. Oh, God. (laughs) My great-great-great-grandpa fought in the Crimean War and worked for a time at Flo's Hospital. Ever since then, there have been rumours that he boffed her. How (laughs) dare you! Anyway, John, he writes, Florence was a babe, but probably out of your league. Andy, you have a fine taste in women. Shame on both of you. But it's good to hear the return of boff. (laughs) I think I was probably 12 the last time I heard that. <laughs> so if any of you, uh, Bugle listeners, have secret attractions for historical figures, whether they be male, female, or both, please send them in to thebugle at timesonline.co.uk. Bugle Sports, now. And Britain, at this time of year, as always, is talking of nothing else but the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards the social highlight of the British year. So to mark this, here at the Bugle, we are having the first and so far only annual Bugle Sports Awards. We will be announcing the nominees this week and the winners next week. And you listeners, you are allowed to nominate your own nominations in the categories we're about to announce. So our nominees for Sports Man of the Year are the former England football manager Steve McLaren, in a world, boo, boo, in, <laughs> boo. In a world where sports folk are obsessed with proving the critics wrong, here was a man who, with his tactics, selection, and demeanour, single-mindedly set out to prove the critics right. Also nominated, Barry Bonds. Let's hope he carries on until he passes the number of home runs Hank Aaron would have hit had he been on steroids, just to clear up any lingering doubts. So, if you've got any more nominees for Sportsman of the Year, do send them in. The Bugle at TimesOnline.co.uk. In the category of greatest sporting hyperbole, I would like to put forward the sports commentator who commentated on Travis Pastrana's double backflip on a motorbike during the 2007 X Games, which led to him claiming that Travis had found the Holy Grail. 
Well, there you go. Maybe that was it, Sandy. Maybe the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper was a Suzuki Rough Rider. <laughs> Please, email in your suggestions for sporting hyperbole nominations. We're also, as well as Sportsman of the Year, we have a Sports Lady of the Year category. The nominees so far include Marion Jones for showing that even nice people can cheat and Rafael Nadal for continuing to upset the odds as a woman in the men's world of men's tennis, rising as high as number two in the world men's rankings. Is he not actually a man? My mistake. And also nominated the New Zealand rugby team, the best team in the world for the last four years, absolutely choked in the World Cup quarter-final, showing that years of careful preparation, professionalism and brilliance count for nothing, bringing hope to layabouts and low achievers around the world. We should definitely have a choke of the year category. Please email in your best choke of 2007. In scapegoat of the year, uh, all our nominations are related to England's exit from the Euro 2008 Football Championships. The following scapegoats are up for nomination. Steve McLaren again. Computer games, overseas players, the government, previous governments, British social history in general, physics and Croatia. Yeah, yeah, so right do email in uh, your nominees for any of these categories or any further categories of your own and we will have a special Bugle Awards ceremony next week. Strap in, listeners. It's time for your cryptic audio crossword clue. This uh, week... Can I, just, can I just say goodbye to all the listeners before <laughs> you do this? Goodbye, see you next John, week. John, do not disrespect this segment of the show. This week it's 14 across, 12 letters split into two words of seven and five. And it is this. Two old Prime Ministers suggest out loud that Prince stops for new tyres and refuelling. Seven, five. Uh, for those of you who enjoyed our audio advent calendar last week, I'm afraid this week it's stuck on a notice board behind a letter from the council about not stealing people's bins. Uh, now for the Bugle Hanukkah forecast. Uh, I forecast that Hanukkah will finish on Wednesday, the ninth day of Hanukkah, because 2007 is a leap Hanukkah. So get those extra candles out. Candle. 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 <laughs> what a bad Jew. One candle each. Candles plural. I, I am bad a bad Jew. Jew, but I'm not bad that bad Jew. a Jew. So that's it from The Bugle this week. Do keep those emails coming in. Thebugle at timesonline.co.uk And we'll be back to set the world to rights next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.